Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In the first segment this week, senior editor Nick DeSena chats with me about KTM's latest Super Duke GT. That's the sport touring version of the Super Duke R. The question is whether KTM overly detuned its fierce superbike or whether, even in touring mode, the heart of the beast is still just as savage. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey talks with master mechanic David Berend. David's amazing career has taken him all over the world as mechanic and crew chief for some of the greatest riders in Moto America, World Superbike and Moto2. David is now technical director for Andriani Suspension USA. So, if you have suspension or handling questions, David is the guy to help. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget, we're still running our Cortec Light Gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook page and find the Cortec Gloves post. All you have to do is like it and the two winners will be selected at random each week. We will message you if you're one of the lucky ones. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. There haven't been a whole lot of changes this year. Uh, I guess for the United States specifically, it's the first year that it's uh, come back after its brief hiatus. Uh, you know, there was just a bit of a gap between uh, the end of 21 Maybe it did leave in 21. I can't entirely remember, but it was gone for a little while um, in the United States market specifically and other markets that may or may not have been the case. However, in 23, it is returns and it's returned with a handful of small refinements, we'll say. So first on the docket is a new seven inch TFT display. It's kind of the biggest of the bunch out of the KTM family. Uh, the main mechanical stuff that we'll be seeing this year um, are some updates regarding Euro 5 emissions compliance, and that just applies to its LC8 V-twin engine. So really nothing has changed here, there, I should say. Um, it also receives uh, lighter wheels. They are two pounds lighter collectively, not each wheel specifically, but overall. Still shedding a shedding unsprung weight is always helpful. And then, you know, some really small things like the, the switch gear is new and it's, I would argue a lot more user-friendly. It's also backlit, which is nice when you're riding at night, but yeah, we're, we're just going to be getting into the, the 2023 KTM 1290 Super Duke GT, which as everyone knows is a derivative of the Super Duke R. Um, so yeah, that's where we're going today. Okay. I guess first things first, have they made any changes to the engine or, or any tweaks anyway? It really just applies to emission stuff. And at the end of the day, we're still dealing with 175 horsepower at uh, 9750 RPM and 104 foot-pounds of torque at 7000 RPM. And if you were to compare the current generation engine to the prior generation, I would say that the, the new model-specific uh, tune is just kind of i don't want to use the word taming necessarily i would say it's becoming more educated in the way that it uses its power um 
you know, the, the Super Duke R is not exactly known for its subtlety. And really, you can extend that observation to KTM as a whole. Granted that this is a brand that its chosen color is bright orange. So, you know, that that's indicative of their mentality right there, which is fine. But the Super Duke R as a whole, it's a pretty aggressive motorcycle. You know, it has it's pretty, well, let's just be honest, stupid amounts of torque. And it's very much in a, in a class of its own when we talk about, you know, sport bikes. It may not be the fastest, the most powerful, the yada, 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 but it is the only enormous torque-rich V-twin in the segment and definitely is the most hooligan of them all. And really that personality translates into the GT, but in this grand touring configuration, it has its own model-specific tuning that we've already mentioned. And it just sort of highlights the, the user-friendly aspects of the engine. It's still a big, burly engine. There's no doubt about that. But it serves up a super flat torque curve that pretty much kicks off not too far off after idle. And then just kind of carries on all the way through. It's pretty tough to, to find, you know, a, a flat spot in the RPM or, or, you know, power that isn't usable unless you really let the let the revs drop and then it just can become a little bit clattery which is kind of indicative of of all you know big v-twin engines you know if you let them get a little too low in the rev range they get a little too lopy but that said you know it's still just a beast at heart and that's kind of kind of the tagline from the the Super Duke cars, it's called the beast. And I would say this is the beast with glasses or, you know, instead of eating its crayons, it can actually use them. Um, you know, it's, it, it really, really lives under this sport touring veneer, but we shouldn't paint it as such because a lot of the sport touring world is pretty vanilla and um, boring will say <laughs> but yeah it's this is not that it, the super duke gt is kind of in a in a different class of sport tour i would say super sport tour is a more apt description so things like the kawasaki h2 sx se plus the ducati multistrada v4 rs the um the new bmw m1000 xr kind of bikes of this ilk that are really in this upper echelon of sport touring. So they're definitely not your, your BMW R1250 RS or your, your Honda. Um, oh, what was the, what was the V4 Honda? It's actually a really good engine. God, what is uh, it? The VFR 800? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely not a Honda VFR. It's not, not something a little more casual. This thing is still a, true blue fighter at the end of the day so you know with that you have really good fueling um you know there's no snatchiness to really speak of different ride modes of course um and you know with that then we sort of segue into our electronics talk but uh right yeah, yeah that's kind of the engine in, in a nutshell yeah yeah it's uh i mean it's a pretty it's pretty smooth engine like you say the fueling is really good um 
when I rode the GT a few years ago, uh, they launched it um, on the island of Mallorca, which has really small sort of twisty little roads. And for what is a is a very, you know, is a big, very powerful motorcycle, it handled those, you know, slower speeds and those tight twisties extremely well. I was I was very impressed with it. So I can imagine that it's only evolved better. So have they um, have they announced any changes to uh, to the electronics? Have they sort of updated much or is it really an emissions thing? That's sort of evolved over the years. Um, the The last Super Duke R update was in that was for model year 2020. And we rode that at Portimao, and then they released the Super Duke uh, R Evo, which came with electronic suspension that we'll get into in just a second. And things have evolved basically since then. And so the GT is repping sort of the latest and greatest from KTM, even though it may or, you know, be a, a season or two old at this point. That said, uh, KTM does do the sort of, uh, well, there's no other way to color it, is kind of this obnoxious thing where they charge extra for you know, the, the ability to unlock features that are already on the bike. So the one... The one caveat to all this is that it is just a fee. You pay your money to the dealer, everything gets unlocked. Then you have full access across the board. And unlike, you know, other brands, I would say Kate or sorry, BMW is the most notorious for segmenting the options and making it pretty convoluted. Uh, in this case, you pay your $860 and you buy the tech pack that includes the track pack, which unlocks adjusting your nine level traction control. It also adds two separate adjustable ride modes that are dubbed track and performance. Uh, track changes the dash menu into something that's a lot more racetrack focused and performance maintains the ability to use cruise control and navigation while still allowing you to adjust every other parameter, just like track. So you can switch ABS into a supermoto mode instead of a road mode. You can also adjust wheelie control on or off and also activate launch control, which are all things that I've always wanted to do on a sport touring bike. Um, <laughs> now, you also yeah. have the, the quick shifter, which is part of the tech pack, um, up down quick shifter, um, engine braking management, also known as motor slip regulation. That's the KTM term, but for all intents and purposes, it is engine braking management. And then you also have uh, hill hold control, which is kind of specific to the sport touring and adventure bikes from KTM. Uh, it's not something you see on stuff like the Super Duke R or 990 Duke or whatever. Um, okay, so that was all this stuff work. Now you have the three preset riding modes, which are sport, street, and rain. Those are all pretty self-explanatory. As we mentioned before, the fueling's good. I pretty much just live with this bike in sport mode. Um, in terms of the throttle map specifically, and then just kind of kept TC on the lower end of the spectrum because, you know, it's been um, pretty clear weather. The couple times that I rode the bike out in a bit of a drizzle, you know, cranked it up and it wasn't that big of a deal. And then you have your ABS modes, which are completely unobtrusive. Now it isn't a hardcore sport bike, so there's no need to like really get in the weeds with, you know, more track oriented ABS modes, but you could pop it into supermoto mode, which disables ABS in the rear and also disables the cornering function of the ABS. 
So you could go and spin some laps at a racetrack and do it pretty confidently if you wanted to. Um, I wouldn't really blame anyone for doing it personally. And then you can also disable wheelie control, which there's no multi settings here. It's just on or off. And any motorcycle bearing the Duke name is that's kind of its thing is wheeling and not to like kind of go back to the engine, but one of the things with the throttle mapping and the engine power overall is that I, I wouldn't say that the engine is necessarily this unhinged lunatic of a, of a, of a power plant. Just the way it delivers power is, is pretty stunning in certain circumstances because it has so much low ends. You just kind of crack the throttle on and you can definitely pop the front end up without any effort. If we were talking about an inline four, configuration motor that would probably mean you're you're spinning up the engine a lot more aggressively whereas here it's just a little rough and i would say the the action does not always translate or reflect the exhaust noise if that makes sense as in the engine is not working very hard to pop that front end up so you know once you lay into it and you make that twin cylinder engine scream it'll it'll rev up like the dickens and it's it's pretty awesome in that regard too but that said going back to the electronics look it's a sports touring bike we're riding on the street and all we really need these electronics to do is stay out of the way and work when they're supposed to which is exactly what they do so not to belabor the point there now ktm did also introduce a whole new navigation aspect coinciding with their uh kind of crisp seven inch TFT display and the stuff works. Um, but if I'm dead honest here, uh, you know, navigation stuff is not something I use a whole lot. Um, it's, it works. I'll just kind of leave it at that. I, I have no real opinion beyond it. It didn't anger me, which is, uh, what most <laughs> of these systems do. Um, right. Okay. So there there's that, but at any rate, that kind of brings us into you know some of the other aspects of this bike um how's the suspension on it have they gone to anything a little more sophisticated than than they had before yeah it features a wp semi-active suspension it's pretty okay. much the same stuff that's derived from the super duke r evo you know we've also seen semi-active suspension systems on a variety of other ktm motorcycles at this point so they aren't entirely new to this uh you know, this trend in motorcycling. Uh, it's, of course, as I mentioned before, it's it's developed by WP, which is not quite the in-house suspension brand for KTM, but they are owned by the same parent company. And WP happens to be uh, one of the main clients for KTM. Funny how that relationship worked out. Yeah. Um, but obviously they develop with each other a lot. And you can see that all the way up on through to their supercross and motocross efforts and into MotoGP. Now, unlike this, the Subaru car, which has a, a lot more fine tuning, we'll say in the adjustment that it can achieve, they've really just kind of dumbed things down and kept it simple, uh, simple. And you'll find three damping modes, sport, street, and comfort. And then you have four preload shock settings that are really uh, related to your luggage. So you have rider, rider with luggage, passenger, et cetera, et cetera. 
if you're familiar with BMW uh, suspension settings, it pretty much mirrors that in a lot of ways uh, for their semi-active suspension stuff. And it's kind of funny messing with the preload settings because it's probably the closest I'll ever get to experiencing what a MotoGP bike does with its ride height device. You change any of these settings, you can actually feel the preload being either tightened or loosened. And that raises and lowers the overall seat height. So as you're sitting there, you can actually feel it moving up and down. It's kind of kind of unique. And although a lot of motorcycles do this, this is one of the ones where it actually stood out to me. Um, on a lot of the BMWs, it, it's not something that I can really feel most of the time. Um, so it, it definitely makes a pretty dramatic change. And when you're riding the bike, you feel it. I mean, if you put it in the comfort mode and you're in the lightest preload settings, the bike feels borderline choppered out. Yes, it's totally comfortable and floats over bumps and bruises and it's completely fine for a comfort setting. It does make that steel trellis frame feel a lot looser than it would in other settings, as you might guess. So that's not a knock, but just an observation. And then as you start cranking things up, it becomes much sharper. And, you know, it sports geometry that's pretty much on par with other uh, leader class sports touring bikes. So, you know, it has a pretty sizable uh, wheelbase, not exactly the steepest rake in the world, you know, things of that nature. That said, when you put it in sport mode, definitely stiffens things up quite a bit. And you're able to ride the thing just as fast as any other sport bike would in the Canyon Road. And, you know, if someone were on a Super Duke R, I think they, I don't really think they'd be running away from you at all, especially on the road. In fact, I think you'd be right there with them because it's just that capable. And you have to remember, this is a slightly diluted version of a Super Duke R, though there are tangible differences. I mean, the Super Duke R feels taller. It's, you know, feels more aggressive, especially turning in initial uh, entry to the, the corner. And, uh, you know, overall, just it's more representative of, you know, a naked sport bike. Uh, this bike is a lot heavier. So, you know, that that's kind of a... Um, we'll say a, a, a mild hindrance in its mission of sportiness, but realistically you can't say they're apples to apples. It's, it's a bit of its own thing. Cool. But if we're talking about other sport touring bikes, then it's a pretty, pretty sporty sport touring bike. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that that's kind of where we're at on, on that one. And then sort of the, the last thing to mention is also that it uses Continental Conti Sport Attack for rubber. Now, Continental isn't a brand that we get to use a whole lot in the United States. It's not typically used as a OEM fitment for a lot of different brands. KTM is one of the few that, that actually uses them on their street bikes. Um, but yeah, these, you know, these tires definitely work pretty well. Um, good grip and, you know, you're going to get some decent mileage out of them as well. But kind of the main thing for this year is that the wheels are 2.2 pounds lighter and that's unsprung weight. So that's just less rotating mass. You're fighting less physics to get the thing tipped over. 
you can pretty much just sit bolt upright and steer the bike around from these, you know, wide handlebars or, you know, put some body English into it and ride it around as if you are, were on a proper, you know, naked sport bike. It's really kind of up to you. I think the, the, the big question is for me is why wouldn't you simply buy a super do car and make that a sport tourer? It, it it does come with you can get luggage for it and uh, and so on. Is is this really that different to the Super Duke car that it's it's really it, it's got its own identity? Yeah, I think when the Super Duke GT came out, it had an identity crisis. As in, the bike you rode in Majorca essentially was a Super Duke car with bags, and there wasn't there wasn't really a good separation between the two models because Super Duke R owners have noticed that it's a pretty comfortable motorcycle overall and pretty livable as a, as a street bike too. You could throw an aftermarket windshield on it. You could get some aftermarket bags and you're 98% of the way there to the first generation of Super Duke R. I think as this bike has aged, that separation has become more clear. So it's model specific geometry has definitely given it its own personality. It's not as quick footed as the Subaru Duke R. It actually leans into stability far more. It feels lower. It feels longer. The riding position is sat back a bit more. So you're not as connected to the front end. And that's sort of a, a negative criticism. We'll say it's not even negative. It's just kind of how it is. You're not over the bars as much. And the trade-off is it's a more comfortable motorcycle. You're sat up a little bit more. You're in a more casual riding position. You have the adjustable windscreen and then also much bigger fairing in the front to provide a lot more wind protection than you would on the Super Duke R. And that's actually something that I would like to point out. You know, one of the main things, the SDR at Portimao is every time I'd go up to the front straight, I'd be like, oh man, I can finally rest. You know, Portimao is a pretty active racetrack. Right. Actually, the hardest point on that racetrack on that bike is because you're holding on. Like there's so little wind protection. You're getting pulled off the bike from every direction. Like your knees are getting spread. It's pretty, pretty wild. I found exactly the same thing at Qatar when I rode the SDR at Qatar a few years ago. It was the same, it was the same problem. You get these long straights and it's like, oh my God. And you're just desperately trying to shelter from this, from the wind on it. Yeah. And it's, you know, uh, it <laughs> takes a lot out of you because you're on a straight and you're like, okay, I can breathe. And you're like, no, I'm doing lat rows basically. <laughs> right. And this bike doesn't have that issue for two reasons. One, you don't ride it the same way. You're not going as fast. It's, it's not even going to happen just in terms of the, the list of possibilities. I mean, yeah, you could go and ride around at 150 miles an hour, but like, why would you? Um, but you also have the wind protection. So it's just not there. The fuel tank is much bigger. So it has a 6.1 gallon fuel tank instead of like four something or another. So range is extended. We've already touched at the comfort differences. Um, but then you have things like the built-in uh, uh, luggage assembly. Uh, so when you rode the bike in Majorca a number of years ago, KTM provided uh, luggage with the motorcycle. That was a standard feature. Now, begrudgingly, I have to admit that the 
the bags are 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 an option for some reason. Uh, the only real explanation I can come up with that is they're trying to keep the bike under what is kind of a foreboding $20,000 mark. Right now, the MSRP is $19,799 as tested, and that's with the optional electronics package, the tech pack, and then with the optional side cases, we're at $21,484. That said, look, if you're in the market for a Super Duke R or a Super Duke GT for that matter, you're kind of a discerning buyer. And I don't think that uh, that price differential is going to make a difference to you, but the marketing department clearly disagrees with me. I think, I think it's quite smart. I mean, Suzuki does the same thing with their, you know, with their GT and the GT plus. I mean, it, it's like, why buy a thousand dollars worth of hard bags? If you know that you're not going to use them or you're going to use them so infrequently that it, it just seems, it just seems smart to me to just be able to, uh, you could almost say the bike comes with bags, but you can buy a, a sort of a, a less expensive version if you don't want the bags sort of, you know, express it a slightly different way. And I think that's a good option. I think it's a good option for people to say, I'm never going to use the bags. I don't want them, you know, um, thank you very much. I'll, I'll just rather save the money. And I mean, I, I would say if that's the opinion, just go for a different bike because this is the GT, you know, GT stands for Grand Tour, right? So you're not taking advantage of the full use of the bike. At that point, you could sort of just, spec out an SDR and do something like that. But you'd be forgetting about a handful of other features. But if you're not quite such a hardcore rider and you want something, you know, this bike is definitely has can unleash beast mode. I mean, I discovered that riding it. I really liked it. Um, and in some ways I preferred it to the SDR just because it was a little more upright, a little more comfortable. I'm an older guy. You know, somebody of your age is going to sit there and go, no, 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 SDR all the way. I want the beast. But somebody of my age is going to go, you know what? this bike is so fast and so capable. Huh, I'm prepared to sacrifice a little bit in the specification sheet to have something that's a little more comfortable, got a little more wind protection, just a little more gentle on the body. And I personally, I would happily buy a GT and I probably wouldn't want the bags. I'd never use them. So, you know, I, I think it's, I, I, I like the fact that KTM give people the option. You know, like you say, you're talking 20K for these things. So, hey, if you can save a grand, save it. Yeah, I mean, um, I see it as <laughs> avocado on a burrito. Yeah, I'm buying it regardless. So give it to me. Um, but really, the, the, the touring aspects kind of continue with, with other things that are they're, they're on the Super Ducar to an extent. Um, some of these features aren't, obviously. But... You have things like cruise control. It's not adaptive, so it's not really keeping up with the Joneses of, you know, the Multistrada V4s, some of the BMWs. That adaptive cruise control is just a gimmick. Yeah, I'm I'm on the fence about it personally, but you know, it's a measuring stick, and if one one has it, then you point out which one doesn't. Whatever, fine. I don't personally. Truth be told, for everyone listening, I rarely use cruise control ever because I'm probably harboring some sort of deep adult attention deficit disorder thing but um <laughs> yeah i think you probably are yeah i would agree with that 
I love cruise control, but I hate adaptive cruise control. Yeah, I just don't really use either. I'm usually doing something. I'm either slowing down or speeding up. I don't I don't know which one. But then you have heated grips. You have hand guards that are in, uh, part of the package with this thing. It also has self-canceling goals, which is awesome. I think all bikes should have that. It also has the front side lights as well, and those are pretty powerful. Yes, it has the... Those are lean angle sensitive, aren't they? Yes. So the, the LED headlight is the, I guess the cornering headlight is the generic term for those. Um, and then it has a key fob. Um, now, another new feature that we couldn't really show very well in the photos, on the interior runner of the front fairing, left and right side, there are these little pockets. And... Arthur, I don't think you're going to be familiar with this, but there used to be this really terrible, ugly shoe company in the early 2000s that appealed to skaters and BMXers who smoked weed called Osiris. And the gimmick of this company was that it had tiny little pockets so you could stash weed inside of them and the police would never know. Um, at any rate, that's what it reminds me of. <laughs> and so, they're just these little fold-away pockets on the interior of the, of the fairing, and they're really discreet. Now, you do have to turn the handlebar to each side to access them, but that's actually where I kept the key fob when I'm riding, because a lot of the time, I, you know, I, I don't like carrying key fobs in my pocket. They kind of feel awkward, and, you know, they're a bit bulky sometimes, especially on a track bike so that the honda cbr 1000 rrr sp is like that and that's a bit annoying so if i can just stash the key fob somewhere that's cool so that's what i do with that and then one of the pockets has a usb uh, connector too so yeah the, the touring amenities that's what makes the gt the gt so i think again when the sdr and the sdr gt came out kind of that second gen SDR and then the, the GT version came out, they were too close together. Now there's a pretty good bit of separation. Like, yeah, the, the engine is still the engine. You're still getting, you know, 90% of an SDR experience. Peak horsepower is down a little bit. And peak torque is down just a sniff from bike to bike. The fueling is model specific to each bike, but doesn't matter. I, I would say you're not really losing much on that end. Just kind of makes it a little bit more livable. You know, the, the fact is it, it is a big engine. It is kind of hot. Um, I mean, it's 1301 cc's. I don't know. I don't know what to tell people at this point. It's mm -hmm. Kind of my observation of all of the, not all of them, a lot of the high performance, you know, engines of that displacement. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of the touring stuff in a nutshell. And it really does make a difference because you can ride this bike in a lot of different capacities, which sport touring bikes, in my mind, become something of, you know, little Swiss army knives for your garage because you can ride aggressively on it. Then you can do some touring on it. And then all just the daily commuting, you can ride to the office, you know, go to go to the grocery store, stuff like that. And it's probably going to be the most exciting trip that your milk has ever experienced you know but <laughs> yeah. uh yeah that's that's kind of what's going on with a good sport touring bike it's just a well-rounded motorcycle granted this one lands pretty hard on the performance end of the spectrum but yeah that, that's where we're at yeah 
Well, excellent. Yeah, I I loved it when I first first uh, tried it. Um, a big fan of the bike, and uh, and I think and they changed the looks a little bit. I mean, it just looks a little more compact. The the fairing in the front of the bike looks a little more um, just a little more evolved. It looks looks really good. I I, I like the bike. I think it's awesome. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the biggest visual difference this year is there's a lot more fairing going on. For me, really all that translates to is the cornering headlights. Those are are pretty prominent. And then you have the uh, the extra wind protection, which is something to really note because if you were to look at the front profile of a Super Duke GT versus a Super Duke R, there's just more stuff in the winds protecting you. So not just a windshield, not just the the hand guards. You have a lot of fairing protecting you. And that's that that's not nothing, we'll say. Yeah. Yeah. Um you know the price point, you know, it's cresting into that 20,000 plus range when it's all said and done. But overall you know, like we we said in the opening, the Super Duke GT really falls in a, I'll, I'll say, elite class of sport tour. It's not your average little sport tour that's kind of vanilla, uses an inline four or something like that. It's it's definitely its own thing. And then it's also, you know, comparable to the other kind of bonkers bikes in that class, like the Kawasaki H2 SXXE Plus, that thing's supercharged. I think that might be the only supercharged bike out right now. At I least it that is. engine. It is, I believe. Anyway, yeah, so that's its claim to fame. The Super Duke is just an enormous V-twin. That's kind of insane. Then you have a insane um, <laughs> supercharged inline four, the Multistrada. It's the V4 that is developed from the Panigale engine. So that thing's nuts. And then, uh, you know, what else is out there that's pretty bonkers? Oh, well, they've got the M1000XR coming, but the S1000XR isn't exactly too far off that mark either. You put the thing at about eight grand and it starts wheeling and you're like, why? <laughs> but Yeah, if you're, if you're prepared to spend the money, there's definitely a, a choice of Exotica. And I think each one has its own. They're, they're all very different. Um they get to the get to the same end point in very different ways. And I think the GT, as you said, has its own personality. It's very much its own bike. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it's I think it's a uh, it's a good one. Well, yeah. Yeah. Just to kind of reiterate that they get to the same end point in their own ways. The thing is, with these particular bikes, they do it a lot faster. So yeah. <laughs> that that's the the point that I need to make abundantly clear about this particular motorcycle is um, it is a performance bike. No, no doubt. And that's probably why I gravitate towards it so much because exactly. it gives me a lot of that super duke charm in a little bit more, we'll say user-friendly and uh, real world sort of uh, packaging when it's all said and done. So yeah, that, that's where we're at. Terrific. Thank you as always for your insight. Appreciate it. Great bike. Yeah, sounds good. Don't forget, we're still running our Cortec Light Gloves giveaway. Simply go to the Ultimate Motorcycling Instagram or Facebook page and find the Cortec Gloves post. All you have to do is like it, and the two winners will be selected at random each week.
we will message you if you're one of the lucky ones. Please note, this is only open to residents of the USA. In our second segment this week, editor-at-large Neil Bailey talks with master mechanic David Berend. David's amazing career has taken him all over the world as mechanic and crew chief for some of the greatest riders in Moto America, World Superbike and Moto2. David is now technical director for Andriani Suspension USA. So, if you have suspension or handling questions, David is the guy to help. So, how did it get started for you? Born and raised in Canada? Uh, yeah, born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. Um, and uh, um, just kind of like grew up in a little um, place called Scarborough, which is just part of Toronto. Which is interesting, that's an English town, Scarborough. It is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Canada has a lot of influence from the UK, so. Yeah, they did. So how did you, um, conventional family, mom, dad, brothers, sisters, anything? Uh, like? Just mom and dad. Uh, my father moved to Canada from Germany. And uh, so I think he moved when he was about 10 years old. Um, so that would be in the 50s. And, uh, you know, met my mom and they had me. My dad was into motorcycles and that's Is kind that of, where you got the bug? I think so, yeah. What, what was his motorcycling um i don't remember too many of them but i do remember uh, i forget the year of the bike probably 83 or 85 or something a honda ft 500 ascot single cylinder single cylinder yeah, same mm -hmm. motor they put in the xl 500s i think wasn't yeah it? probably yeah it was, a it was a nice little bike it's like a little flat tracker thing kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I actually know somebody guy named Roland who in his 70s he's actually flat tracking one of those bikes is that right yeah that's very cool so that kind of so did, did he take you riding on the back or you know very little I um I didn't get a whole lot of influence but you know it was kind of that side and he would take me for rides sometimes never really took my mom for a ride um, but it was a it was a small influence Never had dirt bikes or anything when I was a kid, never. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when I was, um, I think when I was about 16, uh, like there was a co-op with my high school. And, uh, you know, I knew I had a, like a technical thing with engines and motorsports and so on. And my first thought was like cars, like racing cars and so on. So you always mechanical as a kid growing up? I think so, yeah. Were you taking bicycles to bits and lawnmowers and stuff like that? Um, I wouldn't say I put them back together. <laughs> <laughs> they um, were coming to bits okay, right? Yeah, usually. I remember my dad had a, he bought like an old car and stripped it down and was starting to put it back together. I don't remember the name of the car because it was never put back together. <laughs> Just kind of sat outside. Right. Um, but I took a, I used my co-op to work in an engine rebuilding shop, like cars. Remember remember when people used to rebuild their car engines and put them back in and, you know, you don't just buy a new car, you just... Yeah, like, you rebuilt the one you had. You yeah. rebuilt the one you had. And I, I used, it was, oh my God, it was toxic. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
like the chemicals we used to use in there and the way we cleaned all the blocks and so on. And I remember, um, you know, I had a, an issue with some health in there um, and I decided to change it, um, like the place where I was working. And um, basically, because I had already been putting in time there, there was no other options to go anywhere else. So my co-op teacher said, uh, I don't have anything for you. You got to find it yourself. And I remember I used to ride my bicycle home and I rode by a place called Cycle World. They had an east and a west in Toronto and they had like Harleys and all four Japanese brands. And I, I remember I stopped in there and I'm like, hey, I got to do a co-op. They said, we don't do co-ops here. And I said, well, it's free labor. I must have been 16 or 17 at that point. And they said, free labor? Okay. <laughs> You're yeah. in, right? Yeah. Can you, I remember the first thing. Can you uh, wipe all the oil off the floor underneath the new Harleys and go pull some weeds out in the parking lot and stuff and like clean the parking lot up? No problem. And I, I remember I went back to school the next day and told them, hey, I got a, I got a co-op with a um, motorcycle shop. They said, cool. Um, and what are you doing, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Weed eating. And they were surprised that I went and got it myself. Oh, nice. And uh, I think that that's how I've been kind, kind of my whole life is at least from that age on, I used to just go do things myself. Like my parents weren't around too much. My dad had... Um, a fishing tackle and bait store since I was 10 years old and you know I just remember my parents weren't around a whole lot so, so you I, sort of left your own devices a bit yeah no siblings or anything mm. so I just kind of did my own thing and um, I remember how long did you stay in the co-op place with the house uh, I forget um, how long it was but did you did you get to working on bikes or did they always just have you cleaning up well, in Canada, at least at the time, I don't know what the rules are now. If you wanted to be a mechanic, you have to be trained in a school and you have to put in an apprenticeship, basically. an apprenticeship, like mm. 5,000 hours in order to become a certified mechanic. Mm. And so I realized um, even at like 17, 18 or so, so I must have done it for about a year. And I remember at the time. Um, just the shop sponsored a racer and at the time Superbike was a 750 and there was a guy racing for the shop he was like the national championship I, I don't know where he was in in the championship but he had a ZX7 R like the cool model oh yeah and it had the PM wheels on it and the flats like carburetors and I just remember and wheeling out of the shop one day and I like my eyes just <laughs> what the fuck sorry no, you're fine, huh? um, it's a motorcycle podcast right yeah I just kind of like saw that bike and I this was, is it right yeah what you know I remember like the feeling was on my on my whole body and they fired it up and it sounded the flat slides and the rattling dry, they yeah, had rattling, that dry rattle like, Jesus <laughs> what the hell like I think my life just like now that's my direction right right and you know, I j at that point, I was like, I got to do something. And I, rem I remember like I went to... Were you riding at this point? Not yet, no. Yeah, I actually had a motorcycle at that point. What did you bought? What was your first motorcycle? Um, I, re I remember I got it when I was 17 and it was a 
So what what transpired from there? So you still got the you got the LC, you've got the certificate. What did you, what did you do next? The next thing was pretty cool. I had never been to a road race, and I met up with another shop and um, just started hanging out with them. The owner was really cool. Um, we ended up going to a road race, not a like just a club race, the same track I had ridden on, and at that point I was like completely hooked listening to the bikes and on the track and right. warming up and smelling the air and like the two-stroke two oil yeah two castellar right yeah i don't know what the exact stuff was i was 30 years ago <laughs> yeah yeah i think it was castellar they used to put in those things that had a particular smell two-stroke didn't they yeah and the tz250s and just everything um so saw that and i was like Shit, I gotta go race. And I remember I had zero money and like didn't want to tell my parents, didn't want to do anything to <laughs> broke the I don't even know if I lived at home at that point. Um, so I do know that you know we didn't really have the internet the way we do now, um, thirty years ago. And you know, I had to do the research on it and I didn't know any better. I rode to the track with a um, couple of tools and you know just something to sleep on next to my bike and then you just taped the lights up and just taped it up and wrote um, and in my first race I don't know where I finished probably near the back and Jordan Zoke was in that race it was when he was a like he's a few years younger than I am and he raced and probably won it um, and I did okay but it didn't matter like I'm gonna do this is my path. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. So where did that lead you to? Did you start racing? Where were you working at that point? Um, I had like several jobs. I worked at like Home Depot and- So you weren't thinking a career in the motorcycle industry and mechanical work and stuff. You This was all a long way ahead still, right? Yeah, there was, there was several steps. You know, I was, I think I got a job with a race team. Um, to kind of help out on their technical side. Um, I worked at like Home Depot. I had another job. I, I, I wasn't living at home. And this is still around the like 17 to 18 years old. Mm. So you can see within less than two years, I went from mopping up oil spots to racing an RD350. Yeah, to racing. And then. So it's quite a bit of development, really, if you look, think about it. Yeah. It, like at that pace in your life it just happens really fast yeah not like when you get old i mean older <laughs> mature like us right Quite like cheese <laughs> um yeah um so that being said um shoot i worked on the race team you know i had several other jobs i was living with a friend um in like a warehouse in downtown toronto um I went and visited a friend of mine in Vancouver and uh, British Columbia and I walked outside of the airport to see him and saw the mountains, smelled the the ocean and it's a beautiful part of the world. Oh, completely different than I was used to. Um, so I looked at my girlfriend who was with me, said I'm moving here. Like it no matter what happened, I was moving there. So that was probably like the springtime. And I completed all my tasks. I had another job in a motorcycle shop. 
um, that did a lot of racing. So forgive me, but that just kind of popped up yeah, on, yeah, yeah. on the timeline. Um, but I ended up like just at the end of the, the summertime into the fall, I grabbed all my stuff and um, girlfriend came with me and we moved, we drove to Vancouver with like zero money. Did you take the, the, uh, the Yamaha? Nope, didn't take anything except just what we had. I had like a Honda Civic. Whatever fit in that, <laughs> I took with me for two people. But it was a long journey across that Trans-Canada too. The Trans-Canada Highway, yeah. I've actually hitchhiked that. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. super cool. <laughs> yeah, long uh, journey. Yeah, especially from Alberta to British Columbia. It's Not really, much out there. There's nothing out there. and But the smoke, sorry, the, um, the Rocky Mountains are beautiful. Um, I remember, yeah, coming out of those plains after days and then and you see those Rocky Mountains. It's like Banff from Jasper. It's just, it's just pretty mind-blowing, isn't it? Oh, God, yeah. Beautiful place. Just actually, being a Canadian, you might want to inform the government, but Moose Jaw, the mm. town on the way to Alberta, we actually renamed it Sheep's Bum. <laughs> <laughs> we got stuck hitchhiking there for like a day and a half. So just in case you want to let the Canadian authorities know that we've renamed it. Let me write that down. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. So did you guys go into jobs in the motorcycle industry at that point, or did you kind of just have to get going with something? Um, I, we found a place to live because uh, we, we didn't have anything. Didn't have jobs, didn't have money, didn't have a place to live, but we found like an apartment and I remember like we moved in, looked at my girlfriend and said, uh, guess I got to go find a job. Oh yeah. And so my experience is I've worked at a couple shops, but, um, uh, probably 18 at the time. I don't know, 19. It's really tough to remember exact years and so on. I walked into a motorcycle shop, um, just outside of Vancouver. And I spoke to some guy that worked at the, uh, countertop, uh, like selling parts or something and just walked in and started talking to him and asked if there was any job positions. And he said, Nope, we're not looking for anybody right now, but give me your resume. And, you know, just kind of talked for a little bit and super nice guy. I went home and I get a phone call and it's him. And he said, Hey, uh, come in. We want to interview you for the job. I didn't realize that he was one of the owners and uh, he's, you know, I went in and he gave me a job at that point. He said, you know, you, you could have acted differently if you knew I was the owner, but you were super nice when you came in, really humble. And he said, that means a lot to me. And he gave me a job in the service department as a service writer, which I had no idea about. Um, uh, I'm totally missing. Uh, point about this. The, sorry about that. Fine, fine. Um, there was a year when I... It is 30 years ago, right? I mean, oh not, my God, yeah. So there was a time between um, working at Cycle World and working on that race team where I took a year off and moved to northern Alberta to um, a motorcycle like mechanics training course in Fairview, Alberta. So okay, that, so you did have a pretty good, yeah, and so, so now you've got a bit of a motorcycle back. Correct. That yeah. must have been eight, at 18 years old. So out of high school 
and I took that course. So that's why I'm trying to remember the, the timeline. That's where they, that took into effect. And it was basically fall to spring in northern Alberta. And it gets fucking cold there. Minus 45 degrees at, at some points. And that's why there's not very many Canadians. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, so I got my training, got a certificate. And over the wintertime, we had a 24-hour numbum race. And we raced on a frozen lake, of course, for 24 hours straight. And the whole class like would race, um, just one person after another. And it was crazy racing, like ice racing. You never did that before. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's where like the competition started to come into effect too. And so go back to my timeline, Cycle World, Fairview, Alberta, um, the racing shop like that I worked at. Um, so this all added up. So in Vancouver, this made sense for the owner to hire you because you've got yeah. this, you've got enough ingredients here for him. And I put in hours to work at a shop. So as an apprentice, so that's where, you know, from 16, 17 to 18, 19, mm. like you can see the timeline is going on, moved to Vancouver and then, uh, lived there for a few years and loved it. Beautiful place to live. Oh loved yeah. Yeah. Amazing riding and so on. And so really enjoyed it there. So what do you, so you spent the whole time you were in Cuba working for that one guy at the shop, service writer, or did you transition into other things? Nope, service writer. It was a great shop, really big. They did everything from snowmobiles to big Yamaha shop. Um, How do you think that service writing helped you later in your career? Just understanding the parts of all the bikes? Maybe, or maybe. I, I don't know. I don't really consider it a job. It was just kind of... You were sort of hanging out and having fun? Yeah, I guess so. It wasn't like challenging. Mm. You know, you basically took a customer in, you wrote up their invoice or their estimate, made sure all the parts were in there, and then the mechanics would tell you what they needed, and then they wouldn't put all the parts down, and then, of course, you'd have to order them, and they'd get mad at you because something was a... So it was a little frustrating, and it wasn't really challenging, so... Did you buy a bike? I bought a Ninja 250. <laughs> <laughs> Which must have been like quite the step down after the LC, right? It was a Ninja 500. So oh, a Ninja 500, okay. Yeah, you know, I took it all apart. And I had a, a one-bedroom apartment. <laughs> I took it all apart. What happened to the girlfriend? Was she still with you? or she, Yeah, she okay. was still with me. I put it all in the closet, and then I got a job offer to go down to California. And I put it all back together and sold it <laughs> before I moved. How did that job offer come back? Because that was kind of a significant thing, wasn't it? I mean, it's a big move. Yeah, it was huge. Um, so, the, I think we talked about that before, wasn't it? Like one of those things where you were a bit indecisive as to whether you should take it or not? Or It was really interesting. Um, because of the way it happened, It would if somebody told me this, I wouldn't believe it. Right. So even explaining this, it's hard to... If somebody hears it, it's going to be hard to believe. I was literally reading a motorcycle magazine like Cycle World or Motorcycling or Cyclist or whatever. Like those are the two big magazines you re you read at the time mm. when you read magazines. Oh yeah, yeah. And they did an article on as before we all had attention deficit bypasses, right? <laughs> yeah. They were doing an article on a really successful race team called Aryan Racing. 
uh, based by Kevin Arian. That was the brothers, right? Uh, that was uh, after Two Brothers Racing. Oh, it was after Two Brothers. Okay, yeah. so Kevin Arian separated after Arian. Yeah, and he was the, you know, when they had factory teams and then satellite teams and then back in AMA racing at the time, they had like, you know, three big race teams. And so then, what year would this have been, just to put some perspective into this? Two, 2000. Okay. So this would be 23 years ago. Right. So I was in my... So it would be the year that Scott Russell made his comeback on the Ducati and got hurt at Daytona, right? Sounds about right. That would be that time period yep. of time. And he was expected to come back and win Daytona and Hamill was still racing. Maladin was oh, yeah. a champion. And then, of course, the young Spees was coming up at that point. Right? Spees came a few years later, but it was uh, Miguel Duhamel and... Um, Chandler, Chandler, Steve Crevier, uh, Crevier, Jamie James. Yep. Steve yeah. Crevier used to come by the shop I worked at in Vancouver almost every day because he lived he in Vancouver. He was a nice bloke. Yeah, he was crazy, um, <laughs> but in a good way. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And he used to come in just about every day and hang out with the owners and then they'd go ride dirt bikes, they would go ride snowmobiles all the time, just riding watercraft and stuff it was crazy um he so, was, you, so you're reading the mag got to get you back on this because i yeah. i remember this story now we talked about it at the open house so you're reading about him yeah i'm reading about the race team kevin arian it was arian racing they were interviewing the crew chief um rick hobbs who actually is the race director at Moto America, so he is the one that makes all the shots on all the races for Moto America now. Um, they're in, interviewing him in the magazine. They had just won like a multi-championship again, 600 Super Sport with uh, Nikki Hayden. And Didn't Curtis Roberts ride for them? Formula Extreme with who Curtis Roberts just won that championship. Mm -hmm. uh, and they pretty much like uh, Eric Bostrom and Nikki Hayden, like all the guys coming up through the ranks would go Aryan racing and then to the next level. Um, and I was reading this magazine and uh, the, my cell phone rings um, and it's Rick Hobbs. And he had just called me because he had talked to some people on the phone. They were looking for a, a race mechanic and you know, <laughs> Um, I hung up, like I said, I don't believe you. I hung up the phone on him and then the phone rang again. And he says, uh, no, this is really Rick Hobbs. I told him the story. I'm reading a magazine about him. And he said, oh, you know, we did that three or four months ago. It just came out. Kind of the timeline when you Because well, magazines didn't come out immediately. I mean, yeah, well, yeah that's you right. Did, it didn't come out the next month. It came out oh, yeah, two, yeah. three, four months. Um, so this was February of 2000. Um, so you must have been not believing this. Not a chance. <laughs> and uh, he started explaining things and I'm like, you know, I don't know you at all, Rick. I, do, I know what you look like and I know you're Canadian and I, here's your timeline on this magazine. But like, how the heck did you get a hold of me? Like, and he said, he called, um, he had spoken to the owner at the shop I was working at in Vancouver, the guy Tom, who hired me, 
And they he, were, so they were friends. They were friends. And he was just having a chat with him and he'd seen the potential in you, Tom. And then, yeah, and Tom told Rick Hobbs that I worked for this shop, um, this race shop in Toronto, uh, working for Rick Andrews. Rick Andrews used to build race frames and racing components, like back when you made stuff before you just ordered it online, right? Right. And they had built a lot of cool stuff um, with custom frames and swing arms and all kinds of cool uh, stuff. That's why I really liked working for them. Like I learned so much in my past doing that, uh, machining things, um, everything, welding, building engines. Um, so Tom told Rick Hobbs that I had worked for this, Rick worked, excuse me, for Rick Andrews and kind of like there was a history of where I went to school, what I had learned, what I had done for racing, even though I had very little knowledge, you know, when they're trying to find a race mechanic, that's a pretty specific niche, you know, it's not like working at a motorcycle shop. With multi-line dealer where you sort of... Yeah, changing oil and yeah, yeah. changing tires and stuff. You have to know a little bit. And I'll be quite honest, I knew very little. Like, But the fact that I... You had, knew something. <laughs> I, yeah, I knew that, I don't know, 0.1%. And um, I think the biggest thing was not necessarily what I knew. It's because of lack of experience. It's what I desired. You know, when somebody talks... Just about you and I talking about the castor oil and the smell of it and the sound of the two-stroke, right? Oh, yeah. That comes up in a phone call. And uh, they offered me a job at that point. So I had to take care of like my, you know, working visas and stuff like that. I remember I went to the owner of the shop and they're like, Dave, if you don't do this, I'm going to fire you. <laughs> <laughs> take it. Like this is yeah, an yeah. opportunity. You're 23 years old do it and um, like I was really nervous about doing it like moving to Southern California and you know I had to leave my girlfriend behind we had lived together for like three years and uh, I just remember like being super overwhelmed I mean um, great it, tough decision but exciting yeah well my original thought was I'm gonna go do it for one season and then like recalibrate you know do I do this again how do I live like will i make enough money to even live down there it's not like you i mean in 2000 yeah the internet was going like you could go online and do research but mm. it's not like going on google now um so uh got all my paperwork set up i put literally put my toolbox in the back of my honda civic you know those little hatchbacks um what did the girlfriend say uh, she supported me and she knew that this was a big opportunity. Yeah, <clears throat> so she supported me um, I basically had some clothes and a toolbox and like 350 bucks Canadian bucks so <laughs> yes, what is, They're what not is, as good as American bucks. Yeah, right? definitely not um, and trucked off down the West Coast, huh? And you know, I think what was the coolest thing that really made this decision a lot easier was um, I called a friend of mine in Toronto, like one of my best riding buddies, uh, a guy named Dave Maluski. We used to ride all the time. We lived in the same area growing up, like 
Scarborough and then we rode every Sunday um, in Toronto like just doing all kinds of stuff. Um, he introduced me to a friend of ours, uh, Steve Marco, um, and we would go riding together. Um, now, I didn't know Steve too well, like we just rode together. We never like communicated. Uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, um, Dave on the phone call about moving to, or to California, he said, you know, I just talked to Steve Marco. He's just moved down there a few months ago. Uh, I think he's living in Orange County. Um, where are you going to be living? I said, well, the job is in Orange County. It's in Anaheim. Dave said, let me just give Steve a call. So calls Steve because I didn't know where I was going to live and gets back to me and then goes, here's Steve's number. He's moved to Costa Mesa, California. Is that close to Anaheim? And I'm, yeah, it's like super close. So I speak with Steve and Steve's like, man, it's hard to find a place to live down here, like an apartment. It's expensive. I just moved into a new apartment. Why don't you just move in? Um, I travel all the time. So, you know, you're going to be traveling with this job. So let's just work it out. If it works out, we'll get a bigger place to live. And so I, mo I actually moved into the apartment without even uh, seeing Steve for like a month. I would work and travel. He would work and travel. And finally, we like one day you both at the yeah, same we're both place. there at the same time. Hey, let's go grab breakfast or something. Right, right. So, um, so you jump in with Arian. Who were your riders when you came there? Oh, super good question. Um, I worked there for two years, and we had, I think, the first year was Jake Zemke, mm -hmm. and the second year was Josh Hayes. Pretty good riders. Oh, I remember Josh Hayes on the Arian when he was not, he was more of an up and comer then. He wasn't a big name. They were around. both up and comers. Yeah, right? Zemke, of course, went on to become. He, they both won championships with them. And yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah and uh, obviously, uh, Josh is still racing. The most um, race wins in like American road racing or something. Yeah, because he just won something recently, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. And he's like older than I am. So we joke about that. He was actually here. Last month. Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw him at um, Barber at the Motor America round. Yeah, I think he came here after New Jersey or something. Yeah, I have a bit of a bad story with Josh Hayes. I'm responsible for breaking his wife's leg. Well, I wasn't directly responsible, but I was sort of involved in a project that broke her leg right before he won his championship and snapped a, I think it was a femur or a his lower leg. leg. Or her no, leg. hers. Well, let's just cut that one out, on because I was, <laughs> I was going to send the uh, podcast to him. <laughs> no, we'll cut that one out. No, yeah, she was, we were doing a project for Yamaha, and the idea with Yamaha was that they would have um, Melissa and, I uh, can't think of the girl's name right now, who was a motocross champion. And then they okay. did, we, did, we were going to do track bikes, and then dirt bikes, and then street bikes for Yamaha. And when we got to the dirt bike portion, she crashed and broke her leg, and it was right day or two before he was getting ready to clinch his championship. So. Oh, that, that sucks. Oh, it's part of life, right? I think she's recovered and done quite well. But yeah, yeah, she's doing good. So you did two years with Arian, mm -hmm. and then how did that end up changing? What was the... Well, um, as you can imagine, like, just like a racer wants to go through 
the levels like yeah 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 like a mechanic i was a me just a motorcycle mechanic at the time so what were you doing on the bikes? Just everything from engine builds to building tuning. the race bikes you built the suspension the engines oh so you had complete yeah um submersion in every piece of it yeah we raced 600s and formula extreme which was what the 954 hundreds or something what they were the first two years were 929s 929s sorry yeah yep and then the second two years were 954s okay they were the, yeah and then, um, so, yeah, the first two years we raced both bikes and um, did everything. You know, we built the race engines and built the, the suspension and um, I was learning a lot. Like you can, I don't know if you can imagine how much stuff you learn on building a race bike from the frame up. Like when you get a brand new bike and you take it out of the crate and then you strip it down to the frame, especially when like the 929 came out, it was a totally new bike. Right. Bikes didn't have fuel injection at the time. They were just starting to come with it. Well, those things those didn't even come with straight frames in those days, did they? They were didn't, really weird and that was you have really- to straighten the frames before you even started because of tolerances uh, and- Well, that one had like a frame that came down to the back engine and then there was one that stripped up underneath the, um, <clears throat> excuse me, the engine cases. Mm. It just had an open section, unlike the 900 that was before that. It was kind of a weird deal, and it was kind of on the same level that the Panigales go these days, where the swing arm bolts to the engine and not to the frame. Um, anyways, it was an interesting bike. Uh, Did it do well? Uh, I forget. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say probably not so much because yeah. the GSX-R1000 came out then. And it was just a, a monster. Mm. Yeah, it was a good bike. I, I think we won races and did really well, but um, <clears throat> I'd have to go back to the history of it. I've done this for a long time, so it's hard There's to been, remember. Yes, hard to remember each individual year and year each individual and bike. bike and everything, and so. so where did you go from Arian? <clears throat> Battery Kawasaki. Yeah. So, so that was a big step up. Yeah, like what I was saying, like a, a racer wants to go from, you know, they go from club racing to the next level, like a supported team and then satellite team and then a factory team. The mechanics want to go the same way. So I had this offer to go to um, Battery Kawasaki. A friend of mine uh, kind of helped me to get into the right people there. Um, and I took that job, did it for two years. We did 600 Super Sport and the 636 came out. And so we did 750 Super Sport. And we had a couple riders, Tony Myring, um, uh, Tommy Hayden, and Eric Bostrom raced the ZX7 double or whatever R's. I forget how many R's. I think it he was two. quite successful on that, wasn't he? Considering it was a 750 and Superbike changed to a 1000 rule. Yeah. So, yeah, he did really good. It was a really neat bike, but, you know, it was really long in the tooth. I mean, that whole platform was around for 10 years already. Yeah, I mean, Scott Russell got his championship on one of those in what 93 yeah i mean, I mean this was 2000 lately but, yeah but not much but right? you know it's still a basic platform yeah so, so you stayed with them a couple of years a couple of years and then you know the um 
it was a factory team and a corporate team and we had a really cool facility that we worked at it was actually a lot like this building here at Andrioni USA um, new big we had really cool departments like our service department here was a lot like it was at factory Kawasaki um, so that was cool we had like it was really well set up um, we had an engine dyno a chat like a, a full motorcycle dyno we had engine building rooms each bay had its own so you were progressing in your career with more knowledge more information oh, yeah. more tools more technology higher level yeah we could measure chassis with this arm that would you just touch the place and we could do that there we had all the components we needed um, and i think we won some championships but you know i got the job offer back at arian racing and i really liked the guys like kevin arian uh, rick hobbs Rick Hobbs is one of the most humble guys and knowledgeable. And the one, like he's been, he's super well respected. And, you know, the team was smaller. Um, it had all the information and, and stuff we could do to win races and championships. But we were also separate from Factory Honda. And I really liked that, that it was a family team to some degree, but just a really good kind of experience working through there. I think at that point, before I went back to Aryan Racing, I quit Kawasaki. I decided to take a break from this. You know, I lived in California. I was racing motorcycles myself. I, did, I was successful. Um, but, you know, I think at that point I was in my, I must have been like 28 or something like that. Just kind of like wondering, okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to Europe or like to race in GPs or Superbike. And I think at that point I quit at Kawasaki. This is it. This must have been the end of 2003. So 2000 and 2001 at Arian. 2002 and 2003 at Kawasaki, quit. Um, Suzuki came to me and said, hey, we have a GSX-R Cup. We're going to um, MagnaCore or something like that in France. Um, would you like to come with us? We're bringing Kevin Schwantz. He's going to be running this. We just need you to work on some GSX-R, some 50. Um, we're paying the way to go over to Paris and then we'll it will take you to Mendecor for the last World Superbike race. And I'm like, damn. This I'm is in. Like, I'm in. Fuck yeah. How much are you going to pay? <coughs> and they said, it's, we'll take care of it. Like everything's paid for, but I don't think that they paid me or they paid me, paid me very little. Um, but you can't turn an opportunity like that. Though. Yeah. And I was like, okay, the next step is going to be probably... World Superbike, because at the time, World Superbike was badass. It still is. It's probably better than ever now. Um, GPs were going good, but, you know, coming from American racing as a mechanic to going to GPs, you didn't really step in. You had to kind of go into European through World Superbike. There's and, no path through at that point. Yeah, you have to take a, like, it's a really hard step. Um, I remember I contacted a couple of teams over there and, like, sending emails with the teams. I know one of them was Kawasaki because I had already worked for them. 
Um, and then the other one was... Tenkata. Tenkata. I contacted them and they were really interested in it. And uh, I remember when I was in uh, Magna Corps, it was the last race of the year, I went and met with Kawasaki and I went and met with Tenkate, like, so I had a meeting with them. And I remember that <laughs> this was the craziest thing. Uh, well, for me, um, I remember that there was a lot more mechanics on a race team over there than there were over here. And they were all smoking cigarettes and drinking espressos outside of the, of the uh, bays, like the, they call them the, the boxes. And I, I walked up to one and there's all these mechanics smoking cigarettes. And I said, hello, I'd like to speak to so-and-so. And they said, what are, you, what are you here for? And I said, well, I got a job offer for next year and I'd like to have a meeting. And they all puffed out their chests and all stood up in line and they're like, you know, kind of like, oh, he's not available. And I could see that the person I wanted to meet was right behind them. So at that point, I'm like, if these guys are worried about their jobs that much, either they're not doing a good enough job or, you know, like the teams really don't consider a mechanic, you know, as a long-term job. And if you're going to move to Europe, you don't want to be doing it and get all set up for one year and then that's it. So I kind of uh, thought, I'm going to take a little break. Um, so I went snowboarding in Vancouver for like four months. Like I flew back to California, grabbed my stuff, moved back to Vancouver, stayed with a friend and went snowboarding all the time. Um, enjoyed that a lot. Moved back to see my parents over Christmas. Phone rings. Rick Hobbs, hey, we want you to come back. We're going to do Superbike next year. And um, we have a pretty good rider, but we can't tell you, like we can't release the information. So if we tell you, you know, please keep it to yourself. And uh, I said, okay, tell me. Because I wasn't sure if I was going to move back. I kind of still wanted to move to Europe. That's always been my goal. And they told me we have Anthony Gobert on a CBR 1000 Superbike next year. And I said, I'll take the job. Because <laughs> I don't know if you remember at the time, it didn't matter how good any racer was at the time. Anthony Gobert was... I mean, the the best natural talent uh, of any racer at the time. You know, the stuff he could do on a bike, aside from his personal life. Which was a train wreck. Oh, fuck his yeah. His riding was something oh, else. Oh, my God. Um, the go show, huh? The go show. I was like, I'll take the job. I don't ever remember him being on an Aaron Honda. I don't know where I was at that point. Did he do any good on it? <laughs> So uh, oh, don't tell me he never even showed up or stole it. Or oh my God. Uh, so I took the job, moved back to California. Um, we, the CBR 1000 wasn't even released yet. We had just, it was a 2004 model. That's when they went from 954 to 1000. So we go and uh, like we get a brand new street bike, one. No bikes, sorry, nothing for it, no exhaust systems or anything. I think we got some parts from uh, HRC, but they were not like the real HRC stuff that you see on the factory bikes. They were just some kind of prototypes and stuff. It wasn't really anything kind of good. It was um, 
I only had a few days. I got back to California, uncrate the bike, strip it down, do all the basic stuff. We had to build custom brake lines and you know, nothing was available for it. The bike wasn't even released to the public yet. And we had a test in Laguna Seca with all the race teams. And I, re <laughs> I remember my first job, get this bike done. It needs to be done in a couple of days. Um, Anthony's coming in a couple of days from Australia. He's got to get his stuff from uh, Alpine Star suit, wherever his helmet was coming from, then he'll be at the shop. Didn't show up. Um, I remember I had to, we loaded everything into like a, a, a van, like a Ford Econoline, like the, the shop van. Loaded the bike, some stands, some spare parts, you know, things for doing gas, um, tools. Um, I go and get Anthony, it's just me and him. Um, we, we ended up driving to Laguna Seca in this van, unload it, just me and him, put up a, a tent and all the factory teams are there and it's just me and him with this street bike. All we wanted to do was kind of get him used to it and get the ergonomics and whatever we could adjust, we'd at least put some time. Completely stock suspension. And um, also like I was gonna be his uh, mechanic and he's gonna be the rider. And the crew chief was uh, Rick Hobbs. Um, that was an interesting drive <laughs> up there and back. Like he was a super emotional guy. Um, I don't remember all the details, but I just remember like the talks were pretty deep. And I, I knew a lot about um, Anthony and his, his life, what led him to that point uh, through the conversations and um, maybe kind of understand about what put him on his path. Mm. Um, Interesting story. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to share that with anyone. Right, right. It's it's might be personal. a story for another time, but yeah, interesting. It's his personal life, and um, a few weeks later, how did the test go? Uh, it, I mean, he was only as fast as you can go on a street bike. Um, so nothing outstanding. Didn't do anything crazy. It was just yeah. It was a street bike with a street bike suspension, good tires. You know, nothing spectacular. Um, I don't remember the lap times. I don't think we were concerned about lap times because it's not like we can compare them to anybody else um, because it was a private um, event. So you didn't know how fast anybody else was going on. Yeah, we weren't taking any times against like Kawasaki or Suzuki. So um, we take the bike back. We start to, you know, we actually made our own body work. We made an Arian pipe for it, you know, because we were at Arian. They, they sold exhaust systems and racing parts and so on. Um, get the bike as ready as we could. I think we built the motor to at least the first spec of it, which was really a super stock spec. Um, getting ready for the race. We worked hard for days and like we really only had a few weeks, uh, but we put like 24 hour days in order to get it ready for that event. For The first race was at Fontana. Um, <laughs> he never even made it. He got in, you know what? It's probably not best that I- Well, let's carry on, sorry, that's all part of the thing. Um, through some personal things, he just never made it. Um, and because of those personal things, he was let go from the team. 
So we ended up taking. So he's, in other words, he just got too messed up to show up. Uh, something happened. Like that, yeah. um, <laughs> so all of that work, and he never showed up. So he was the no show, not the go show, the, right? Uh, yeah, that's what they were joking about. I think. Is that right? And I think we ended up taking on his brother, um, Aaron. Not Aaron, um, Alex. Alex. Okay, didn't it, wasn't Aaron go with his brother as well? Yeah, he worked for Yamaha. Okay. And so, I don't know if we, to be honest, I don't remember all this, the timeline of that. We had Alex on the bike, <clears throat> and I think I worked there for 2004, and at the end, yeah, we had Alex that year. He did pretty good, but we had, we didn't do Superbike, we did Superstock 1000. That's why we did a super stock motor. <clears throat> um, we did super bike and then super stock the following year. So, well, a lot of years, a lot of racing. So the details are really but sketchy, to, right? Yeah. That's to put it all in the book when you write it, right? Um, and then I got approached because I was working with Olin's USA at the track. Like they had a couple of really good uh, technicians. They still work there. Um, really good guys, knowledgeable. Um, uh, Brad Stokes and Eric. Oh shoot! And I'm forgetting Eric's last name right now. Um, He'll forgive you. Yeah, I hope so. Well, Brad's still over there, right? Brad's still I saw over him there. The other day. Yep. Yeah. Um, so uh, the the president of the company. Uh, approached me and said, hey, we, we need another technician. Would you come over? And so that was the end of 2005. Um, and I ended up taking on like a lead technician or R&D or I don't even remember what the job title was. Did you move here to Hendersonville? I moved here to Hendersonville. And I remember I literally moved across the country. They had a plane ticket and I moved, flew back to... <laughs> a test at Fontana with factory, uh, factory Honda. They had gone from their Showa to Olin's that year. And I got thrown right into the pit, you know, like I hadn't even been trained yet. Like I just like hop on a plane, go back to where I just came from. <laughs> we did a test, it actually was pretty good. I think, you know, for production, uh, suspension, not the really super trick stuff. Um, we did really good. I was surprised um, with Jake Zemke and Miguel Duhamel. Um, we did that and it worked out good. Flew back and I started training with the company really, really well. Like I went over to Sweden a couple times. Um, we did lots of uh, development in, in the States and, you know, I learned a lot. I really enjoyed it too. When, you know, when um, you do a new job where you're passionate about it, you're learning mm -hmm. the, um, what's the word, um, the challenges uh, that come on. You don't know something, so you got, you got to learn it. And sometimes the information isn't there, so you really got to take, take a lot of time to learn it. So did that for four or five years. And then that was the precursor to starting your business here, right? Yeah, um, I started a new department at, at Olin's USA, uh, Off-Road. Uh, that's where the company started was Off-Road, but they didn't have a specific department. So uh, I started that department and it worked out really nice. And uh, But in 
2009, my daughter was born, Jordan, Jay, excuse me. Um, she was born in September of 2009 uh, when the recession was on. And I decided like a month later to start my own company. <laughs> Smart timing, right? Yeah, great timing. You just had a baby, quit your job and start a business, right? Yeah, uh, it was pretty crazy. And in the motorcycle industry, in the motorcycle suspension industry, like that's pretty, we don't, people don't need that stuff when, when. There's a recession on, right? Yeah, there's a recession on, but I wasn't going to let that fail me, so. Um, so that was two. Well, the crazy part about it is, is people do need suspension on their bikes. They spend money on everything else, but they don't get training and they don't get suspension. It's the it's the strangest anomaly, isn't it? Yeah, when people the buy stuff, the stuff that you really need and helps you out, they they're not so interested in it. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Like, um, I think it's funny. You know, we all follow Facebook and um, you know, like social media, right? You get these companies that post all these anodized parts for your Panigale or for your, you know, like chrome shit for your Harley and whatever, like these add-on parts. And I, I look at that and I'm like, you know, if people... If you spend that money on your suspension, you'd have a better day, right? Yeah, you'll enjoy it. I try to tell people, um, some people get it because they've ridden on premium suspension. Yes, yes, yeah. um, you know, when you set the bike up for you with springs and damping adjustments and sag. And these are things that you can do that are even adjusting your preload on your bike would make a big difference in the ride quality, the tire wear, the comfort, the safety. It's often overlooked and people will spend thousands of dollars bolting on anodized parts and take exhaust pipes. Yeah, exhaust pipes. You know, put an exhaust system, sorry, put a, a shock or a fork kit on it. Um, take it to a suspension specialist and check the sag on it. Make sure it's set up for you. So that's was the premise of you starting your business here. Yeah, I actually had some good intentions. Sometimes I forgot them. <laughs> was that whole theory like I want to help people out? Um, I want to make sure that people get the best from their bikes, um, even if it was like. Uh, doing simple maintenance on the bike, uh, putting in a suspension fork kit or, you know, making sure it's safe, comfortable, and you can ride longer because it's more comfortable to ride. You get good tire wear, you go to the racetrack. I did off-road and uh, road racing and street bikes. I did everything. Customized setting, settings. In your business? Yeah. And what was the name of your business again? Uh, Fast Bike Industries. Right. And uh, I thought it would be a cool name because it's, you know, FBI and, you know, I was looking. And then I used to read Fast Bike Magazine. You're English, so you probably remember I that. did. And they had the best stuff. If they, it hadn't been for Fast Bikes Magazine, I would not have had a career in motorcycle journalism. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I had one of those things like you with the Aryan Brothers phone call. I had been working for a, a strand mapping company. It was just a job to make some money and they ripped me off and I'd come back to Florida where I was living and and uh, I remember my wife at the time was like you know you've got to stop fussing about that shit and let it go right and I so finally I pulled myself together to I think they ripped me off like 17,000 bucks which in those days was a lot of money and I'd been away two months working and I didn't want to give it up and I finally said right I'm going to give it up and I went in the kitchen had a cup of tea and I picked up a copy of fast bikes 
and I opened the magazine up and there was an ad to go to India and ride Royal Enfields to raise money for cancer victims. And I've always did a lot of charity as a kid. And this is before I started my own charity. And I called this lady in England with this very plummy accent, Fiona, and, and she says, yes, hello, global cancer concern. <laughs> I said, I want two tickets to go on the ride. And then I called my wife and said, we're going to India. Nice. And so we went to India and fast bikes were there. So we met Neil Piddock and the guys, yeah, yeah. not Colin Schiller, but we, and I was very interested, how does this work? I bought a cheap slide camera and was taking some notes and trying to pick their brains. And they made like a little TV show and then they did a story for a magazine. And I came back and I wrote this epic story of my time in India. And I took it to a very, a very dear friend and mentor of mine who was a writer. And I said, I've written this story, I'm gonna get it in a magazine. And she reads the scene, she goes, it's shit rewrite it. <laughs> so she made me rewrite it. And then quite by chance, a family friend knew, I think knew Mark Tuttle at Rider magazine mm -hmm. and approached him and he agreed to take the story. And I still think about that to this day. Like, you know, you could, you could hang your mantle on the fact that, you know, the brilliant writing career of Neil Bailey started with my wonderful epic adventure in, in India. And I think what it was, was they were selling Enfield a bunch of ads in the magazine and it just made sense to run a feature story about their crappy product at the same time. And that's how I got started in the motorcycle world. I sold my first article to a national magazine. So I went for a little while trying to you know, figure out how to do this journalism thing and it wasn't working out too well. And I just rewrote that event and said, oh, hey, my name's Neil Bailey, I'm a freelance journalist. You might have seen my work in Rider magazine. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> which wasn't a lie and off we went so sorry I digress but yeah so Fast Bites magazine was responsible uh, they kind of influenced me a lot too yeah like yeah. just the magazine they were the, the pictures were the best they're like they oh, the coolest were, yeah they brought it into a lifestyle it was more lifestyle more death style and lifestyle than they used to say in the videos and they used to have like street fighters always on there <laughs> sorry that's Matt Sage from Olin's uh, peeking in here Oh, that's okay, because yeah, uh, we are geographically close to Orleans. So. Yeah, um, it's kind of funny that they're in Hendersonville, North Carolina, and Arian, sorry, Andriani USA is now here, but... Well, somebody said that to me, they said, why are you there? It's a beautiful area. I mean, your real estate here's got to be a quarter of the price of Charlotte. You're on the East Coast for Europe. I mean, it's... Well, that all, was, all started because um, working at Olin's, um, Andriani Italy, uh, Andriani Group uh, did a lot of like they're the biggest distributor and dealer for Olin's products in the world, like independently. Yeah, they're not a subsidiary of Olin's um, Sweden. So I had been working with uh, Luciano Albedini, who is the president here now. And this is at FBI. So I had actually oh, I worked know. with them a little bit at Olin's USA. Like mm. we had become friends through a good uh, connection, um, like a, a professional connection about parts and tools and trading information. And Luciano is a great guy. Um, we developed a really uh, good mutual like friendship. And I'd never met the guy. We had been emailing and talking on the phone. And they had said that they were looking for I think I'd asked more than they were looking for a distributor for Andriani products. And uh, at the time I was really considering going on my own. 
And I thought, well, this might be an opportunity for me to carry a product where I'm the sole distributor. Um, so we talked and I sent them over like a, what I was interested in. Um, they said, sounds good, let's, let's do this. We set up a contract, I set up the company and I became the first North American distributor for Andriani products. And how long did you run the FBI for? Uh, 2009 to uh, 2002. So, so 2022. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 2022. You missed a decade there. So, yeah. what, principally, what were you doing? Were you supporting race teams? So, uh, uh, the tools, um, Andriani USA and Andriani Group, um, they primarily sell Olin's suspension tools, like their own brand. Um, they sell filling machines, um, and then a, a product called Misano Fork Kits. It's uh, it's a fully in, uh, adjustable from Fork Kits for motorcycles. And what they were um, leading to is um, forks that are like damper rod forks. No one would provide a cartridge kit because you couldn't convert a damper rod fork to a cartridge kit. Just the way that a fork is designed. Um, so they were the first ones to come up with that design. Really, really neat design. Um, you had to machine the bottom of a fork tube out. You could really just grind it off and pop the oil lock out. Um, and they were just carrying it for like so many product lines and they were half the price of any other products because they designed, they manufactured and they assembled all in the same company. Everything was done through the exact same company. Now they would send the anodizing out for a company. I mean, those are like little features, but it was a great product and many different uh, motorcycles would recovered that nobody else carried. So we were really successful with that. And uh, we always would pair that with an Olin shock. Um, I did, with that, um, we sold thousands of those tools, um, all kinds of stuff, like suspension related tools specifically for them. Um, I did training courses. We did, um, I would work for race teams. Uh, I would go to racetracks with a trailer and help out customers. I worked my butt off for so long and there came a point when it just really affected well family life and all kinds of stuff. Because you just running ragged to racetracks and back and running a business. How many employees did you have? Uh, I think at one time I had like over a total probably 15 to 20 like over the 14 years. Yeah so I mean it's management of staff and yeah. product. And, and then but at one time I think there was five or six of five maybe. Mm. Um, I always had really good guys. Uh, I was really proud of that. But if anybody's starting their own business, I have two things of advice. Don't do more than you, like in your gut, you feel like you can handle. Don't just take on, don't just take on new tasks because you want to try something new. And, uh, you know, always follow what you think you can do. Like, I didn't go to school. Like, I didn't, honestly, I didn't even get out of high school. Um, I wish I knew how to um, deal with people better. You know, I wish 
I, I could separate my work from being an employer. Um, if that makes any sense, I, you know, kind of rethinking of things now. I talked to my wife a lot about this, Jennifer, about, you know, you got to separate that. I couldn't go work on suspension and design something or machine something in the machine shop, um, which was very small. And then go and handle like paychecks and, you know, writing up. Oh, and I'm just going to turn that off because it was it was a really tough time trying to do too many things. right? Yeah. And then I would hop on a plane and fly to Malaysia for doing Moto2 with a rider. And then I'd come back and go to a local track to ride my own bike and pretty crazy. But you've got to do it in those years when you're younger and you can, because you look back on it. I mean, and it is, it's like, how did you ever do all that stuff? Right? Yeah. And don't try to have a family while you're doing that. That's another, that's even harder, right? Yeah. Maybe if you're single, fucking take that all on, do yeah. it. How is it working with Moto2? That must've been a wild, you've got your dream to be in the MotoGP paddock. That was awesome. Mm, it's mm. a different story altogether, completely different, like compared to, because um, I was in the AMA Superbike Championship, DMG, which was absolutely shitty. They destroyed racing for a long time mm. in, in America. Um, and then Moto America. Um, Moto 2 and the MotoGP paddock was really overwhelming to get into it, but so well run. Mm. Um, I know a lot of people complain about it and so on. Like, you know, I'm sure you talked to Matt Oxley the other day. I'm sure there's all these tire pressure rules and stuff, but those are just rules. Like going and having lunch over there is a different story. Like the timing, everything is run on a really well set up program. Mm. I just remember like little things Oh, 12 o'clock. Put your tools down. We're going to the hospitality. And I don't, have you ever been over there to some of the... I have. I had the opportunity to ride Rossi's bike a couple of times. Oh, my So God. I got to go into the program, essentially. In, and you, know. you see they have like oh. double stacked, uh, you know, tractor trailers that combine. And then all of a sudden there's like... Like, I just, I mean, it's like, it's hard to remember it all, like you say, looking back. But I just even remember like getting onto the bike and... and a separate guy comes over with a separate tool for undoing the gas cap. And it's a special tool that fitted into the, the, gas to the M1's gas tap. It was a little alloy thing that went into a, I don't know, a notch or a groove on the gas cap. And then he took it off and another guy came over and there was a fuel with a measuring thing and he put it in and then the other guy put the gas cap back on and the other guy came out and put the bike on the, the roller and another guy came and started it. And it was like, all this, why this is that all this precision yeah. instrument and then they put a muppet like me on it <laughs> <laughs> they probably turned the power down a little bit which bike was that it was the one it was the 990 won his championship on damn so know, whatever that is rc211 v m1 it was on the yamaha, oh, yamaha. it was 05 oh wow yeah i don't think it was turned down i mean they i mean a couple of people had crashed them during the day and then i was the last one to ride it and i got on the bike and of course i'm just shitting my pants as you can imagine right you know with an extensive racing career finishing dead last in a thrusting cup race once with a dodgy <laughs> collarbone here i am riding the Russell's. best bike in the world right so i'm getting ready to go 
and the mechanic, the Aussie guy with the tattoos, yells in my ear something. I thought, oh, this is it. This is the this is the bit of sage wisdom that's going to settle all this butterfly action in the stomach down. And I didn't hear him. I go, to what? He goes, you crash, it will fucking kill you. <laughs> oh goodness! But it was so precision, like you said. I mean, so you must have loved that, right? Yeah. No, I was in Moto Two with American Racing and Jim right. Roberts. Um, but still, you're in the you're in the big you're in the big world, right? Yeah. The only thing that wasn't like full race was the street bike motor that was in that thing. The Moto Two bikes were full on race bikes, the Kellex chassis. Oh yeah. Actually, that year would be be the KTM steel chassis and the WP suspension. The first year of the Triumphs. Um, well, now they're a better Triumph motor. They've got a bigger motor now with more horsepower, don't they? Yeah, that was seven sixty five at the time. And it's now it's seven sixty five. Are we still the same? Yeah, I didn't think next go, year... Didn't they go with an upgraded... They upgraded the um, electronics a little bit. Okay. They just kind of, kind of give it a little bit of a tweak. Yeah. Um, but next year is the new transmission for the racing. Because um, neutral, first, neutral, second is a problem on a race bike. So they've done away with the six straight, yeah. So what they're going to do, I think that this is happening on their race bikes, is they're putting... Because it's on super bikes now. Neutral's at the top. You have to push a lever to go to neutral. And when you let them, that out, it goes and you can click it into first. And then you can go up and down first to sixth. And the only way you can get into neutral at the very top is you push a lever on the right handlebar. And that'll be good. Like, there's It'll be, stop that. Yeah, because yeah. we've all hit a false neutral going from first to second. Or yeah, second and street bike motors are... Especially with such a short first gear, mm. I think they'll probably bump up to a taller first gear too. Mm. I hope it'll be a lot better racing. So, so it was really nice. So you kind of that was the dream way back when was to get to Europe, be in the MotoGP paddock. Didn't get to the World Superbike paddock to tune or race. No, um, other than the visit when you went with the Magni Corps. But. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think I, I definitely like to see World Superbike. Again, if I worked in it, it would be pretty cool. Mm. Um, there's less racing, so there's less traveling. And uh, it seems like it's a little bit smaller, like more family. Mm. Um, I think I would, I would like that a little bit more. Um, so that's but, a very, so that was probably one of the highlights of the business. But then, so how did it transpire that you came to Andriani USA then? Because you you've had this relationship with them, because now you're full time here, so you, had to make a decision to cease your business and come work for them here. Yeah, I think it was, I want to say the end of, I can't remember, 2000 or 2001, um, Andriani Group in Italy, um, the international sales manager, Diego, he contacted me with uh, Giuseppe Andriani and they had asked about a merger, like 50-50. Hey, we want to be better and more represented in, in the States, in North America. Mm. As you can imagine, it's a huge market. We have a lot of people here. Um, and the Andriani had moved to Spain and collaborated with, um, I forget the gentleman's name, but it's Andriani MHS in Spain. Um, they wanted to merge with me. Um, I'd really considered it. It sounded like a great deal. Um, it would be 50-50. And I, can, I considered a lot of it. Um, 
That must have been at the end of 2021. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely then. I went back and forth with them. I went back and forth with my wife and just really, I think it would have been hard to consider being an independent owner of a shop to going 50-50, especially with an overseas company. Even though we had a great relationship for such a long time, I, I'll put it this way. I don't have the experience doing that and I don't have the, the sales experience or the business experience to... And you said that that sort of human element when you're coming out of being in a technical environment is not your forte, right? To yeah, jump out of being in suspension tech to being human resources and yeah. marketing and sales and stuff. I'm definitely more technical than I was. So, so this, so that was, so then they, so they made, then they did made the decision to come here. Was that based on that? Yeah, technically, my contract was up with them because mm. as a distributor, you sign contracts with them. You you both sign, um, and you typically set um, a timeline for it. Um, they could have probably just come over here and said, "Your contract's up. We're going to do it." But Giuseppe Andriani is an amazing guy. And oh, yeah. It's a very family company. Like, he treats his employees like a family. He's very, very well um, respected by many industries now. Andriani in Europe is absolutely huge. Well, all Rossi's bikes at the ranch have his suspension. They're Curiosity. all done by Andriani. Right. And nobody would know that. Nobody would know that. Right. Uh, but look at the stickers on the forks. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Andriani in Europe is very well respected. I mean, they make their own Olin shocks. They make four kits. I mean, they manufacture so many things. They actually make the Olin suspension for a lot of uh, Aprilia special models, Ducati special models. All the e-bikes, the Moto E, have Olin's forks and shock developed by Andriani and maintained and tuned by Andriani. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was familiar with this, but in it's Europe, a, it's a real, it's a best kept secret because if you say to anybody I was coming up to talk to, even when I come up to the open house, nobody knows the first thing about it. And it's like, they don't. And um, doesn't Michele Piro race on Andriani suspension in the Italian Superstock as well? Doesn't he? Um, yes, actually, they are tuned by Andriani. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that's a very high level of racing. I mean, he's Ducati's test rider. Yeah, he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> Um, so the company is super well respected. They do mm. really well. Um, they take a lot of pride in their work and I wanted to be, I, I knew that, remember a, a few minutes ago I said, don't go beyond what you can handle, like use your gut. And for years I had always over pushed my comfortable level and it came off as a lot of stress and like, Though even my reactions might have been a little bit short with people mm. because I was overstressed. Yeah, you're overstressed with being at home. You're overstressed with a lot of things. You're just busy. That being said, um, I'm like, okay, here's a chance where I can focus on the things I like, the technical side, and let them handle the business side. Um, so what is your what is your the position here by name technical director so you're the technical director so you just get to do your technology here now yeah and what do you mean you've been a year no because you, you've been with them before you've been with them 
before the open house. You, you'd started a while before you went public, right? Yeah, so it took a year to, like I had actually gone back about a month or so after they had proposed to merge. And I said, I don't want to merge. I'd like to sell 100%. And, you know, they considered it. And um, that's when we came to a deal. Um, we essentially decided at that point to sell FBI to Andriani, US, Andriani Group, but start as a new company, Andriani USA. So at the time, myself and uh, Tom, who was one of the employees at FBI, and my, my wife, uh, Jen, who did administration, and she did probably the most work at FBI. Shh, keep it quiet. Yeah, shh. Um, uh, they came over. Uh, we moved to a new building, which I had actually already been looking at previously. It's this beautiful and fairly new building, about 10,000 square feet. Um, we set up a new shop, um, new workshop, new warehouse, new office space. And, um, uh, you know, it, it took about a year from the original proposal and acceptance of we're starting a new company to the paperwork signed. It took a year of that. At the time I was working at the shop at FBI, I was running the company, working on suspension. Um, I got a job offer to work as crew chief for Josh Heron when they took on Ducati Supersport, when the balancing rules for Supersport went and let V2s and 636s and 765s yeah. and all come into one company and or into one class because there was no more 600s anymore or very little. Um, so they recalibrated everything and did a balancing rule, which was all managed by ECUs and weight and everything. And I got the job offer when I was at Arian, excuse me, at Andriani in Italy. And the phone rings, I, I listen. Actually, I think it was on the, the plane ride out to so you get a job to go crew for Josh Heron. Yeah, I was sitting on the plane to fly, like literally buckling my seatbelt. It's funny, the only people that ever call me are looking for money. This is, <laughs> your life well, sounds better. I get that all the time too. <laughs> um, I, I mean, that was a pretty crazy plane ride to um, Italy. Like, oh my God, I, I just signed my company away. I just got a job offer to crew chief. And I'm going to visit the new company. Well, you know, like what the heck? It sounds like a repeated, repeated theme through your life since you drove that Honda Civic out to Vancouver. Right? It's just been yeah. one kind of wild adventure like to the next. Right? Fully speed, full speed ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. So went out. I, I had a really good time. Like I said, Andriani treats their employees like a lot of respect. Um, Giuseppe, great guy. Um, I met with the president, the future president of Andriani USA, Luciano, who was the original reason I got into. In the first place. So it was all place. kind of full circle. Really. Full circle. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, we were over there for training. Um, 
the I get I call Josh. He said to me, and then I spoke to the team owner. Um, Listen, we're doing Coda is the first Moto America race for Superbike. We're not racing Super Sport there. Why don't you come out? Um, we will meet up with you. You see if you want to do it. Meet the team. Um, they had just signed a rider, Danilo Petrucci. I remember. Uh, so um, I actually got to go to the ranch, to the Rossi Ranch. And uh, like the next day or a couple of days later, hopped on a plane, uh, flew to Coda. We won both races. I think there was two races. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to do this. A week later, I signed the paperwork. And like a day later, I show up at the first Moto America race for the Supersport. No knowledge of it. And we won both races in set pole. So that was a pretty cool experience and it was stressful. I had the crew chief, I had running the business and- Setting up the Andriani. Setting, setting up a new company is a lot tougher than I ever thought it would be. Did you stay the whole season with the- The whole season, yeah. We won okay. the championship, won a lot of races and um, yeah, it was a good time. What a fantastic year. So and so now you're, it's a lot more simplified. So your technical director here, you come to work, you do your job, you're not crew chiefing, you're not running businesses on the side. And yeah, oh my God. nice full-time position, right? It's literally, we've been open a year. Yeah. Um, it's been, it's been really good. Setting up a new company is tough, um, but I had the experience mm. before. Um, it's been a year and finally starting to get into that rhythm. It's five o'clock. I can go home now. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, before, yeah. when you own your own company, you think there's no going home, right? Yeah, you start work at seven and you go to whatever uh, you until you're about to fall asleep. Right, and then here they're like, "Okay, you finished today." Well, yep. to well David, this is, it's been really brilliant to look in because what an interesting, fascinating history. I mean, you got to crew chief on a lot of really cool teams, follow your dream to demoted too, and now of course here, Andriani. I mean, this is a really exciting project. It's a great project. I mean, you've got a you've got a whole project here, like you've got a whole that nobody knows about. Yeah, that, you know, and you, here you are at the high end of the suspension world. So it, I think it'd be a cool adventure going forward, don't you? I'm looking forward to it. Um, we have a great product line, and it's being improved every day. Mm -hmm. um, we run these uh, training courses for suspension training. Yeah, you just had one recently. So. Just had one recently. We're having one next month, um, actually in about three weeks. Um, they're very good. They're more like the dynamics of suspension more than just working on suspension. Um, it's very intuitive. Um, so we have a, a like a training lab here and uh, that works. Uh, it's a really nice course and Juano Andrioni, the son of Giuseppe, uh, very, very bright guy. He comes over and does the course and I work with him for that. Um, we have some new engineers that are working in the company over there. Um, and I speak to them almost every day and they have a lot of passion. You know, they've very, very bright guys and looking to make our products better and easier to work on, easier to understand, wow. more information for our customers, um, like our filling machines. 
trying to improve them every time, developing new tools for suspension. Um, we do mountain bikes as well. Um, so the motorcycle part of it is the biggest end of it though. Yeah, but it's pretty cool because you do dirt bikes, street bikes, track bikes, uh, mountain bikes, you even do some stuff for Harleys, right? We do a lot of stuff for Harleys. Yeah. And then, and then we, because you've got Wunderlicht across the road, so I mean, you've got the BMW. Yeah, BMWs there. right across the road. Oh, lasers to cross the street. Yep. Yeah, I just I just think it's a it's fascinating to hear, you know, because I obviously we'd met at the open house and or had a good talk at the open house. And there's sort of, such a lot of interesting stuff in your motorcycle history that you know people don't see from the outside in. So thanks for chatting today, and good luck in the this new adventure, right? Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. And. Yeah, it was neat meeting up at the open house. Um, was that a year ago? Or it just yeah, and because I got kind of busy, but I mean, because you know, I'd met Giuseppe. I mean, you know, he's an Italian hero, national champion, and, and you know, such a mild mannered guy with this incredible history. So, I'm excited to see what you guys do here in the states. I mean, it's me too. It's a really you, you brought it up. Like other brands, for instance, Owens, mm. the best suspension you can get for your bike. But it's well established. It's been around since 1976. Mm. And it's owned by a much bigger company. And, the, you know, they've had many, many years of development. And although Andriani has been around, I think since the 90s, it really hasn't got going until like the last 15 or mm. maybe even up to 20 years. But the progress that they're making is very fast. Mm. And with these new engineers we have over there, um, one of the gentlemen I, I speak to is Luca. The guy is super bright and passionate. Like, the, the you know, the Italians love motorcycles, motorsports. And, yeah, yeah. So you just, and, you're back to that standing at the racetrack, hearing that TZ250 go by and smelling the Castellar or seeing that ZX7 again. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's cool, isn't it? I mean, we have this passion, I think. And, you know, you, there's two different cultures. There's the North American culture and then European and specifically Italian. Um, well, you've been in our, our service area. When the red floors were painted in there, I'd, it blew me away like wow why don't we paint it like gray or light oh, no, color no, no. and it's like no this is um an italian company they're red and you watch MotoGP or you watch oh this um, garage is beautiful on there yeah they're everything's red it's like yeah, passionate, passionate it's, and, fire. Like, and all of that and that's in the company in the product line um and I walk in the shop every day and I'm reminded of that. Right, right, right. You know, they want it to be, um, everything that we make has to look a certain way and it has to work a certain way. And when we do have an issue with a product, you know, we always want to uh, fix it uh, as quick as possible. Well, and, and they, yeah, that's because it's interesting because you're not just selling off the shelf stuff to people and you're actually making it. So, um, Well, David, thank you very much. We'll wrap up. You've got your dirt bike, you've got your track bike, and I mean, so you're still pretty active in your whole motorcycling life as well. Bicycling, yeah. track riding, dirt riding. Yeah, I think just like you, you know, we're still in our <laughs> middle, middle age. <laughs> well, I'm in my old age, but you're, you're in your middle age. <laughs>